0: Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Podcast. I'm Mark Melton, the Deputy Editor here at Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. And today we have Olivia Enos, who actually did a podcast interview with us back in February of 2017 about North Korea and human rights violations there and also the Christian persecution going on in that country. Olivia Enos is a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation, and she specializes in national security and foreign Policy. Thank you so much, Olivia, for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, you actually just came back from Hanoi a couple of weeks ago and were able to kind of get a gra- ground uh, view of everything going on there with the summit. And also, you were in Singapore too, correct?
1: Yeah, I was at both summits. That's right.
0: And uh, so, my First question, kind of like leading up into uh, you know, the situation in North Korea that kind of um, is leading up to the summit, like what is the state of human rights there? Because I know you have a special emphasis on human rights violations in North Korea.
1: Yeah, great question. Um, So, you know, human rights conditions in North Korea have historically been really, really deplorable, and they continue to be so um, up until today. Um, Estimates are now, I would say, getting a little bit outdated, but in the UN Commission of Inquiry report that was released in 2014, they estimated that between 80,000 to 120,000 individuals are held in political prison camps. And when you look at rough estimates on the number of people who have died as a a result of being placed in those political prison camps. They range anywhere from a conservative estimate of 400,000 all the way upwards to a million or more. And, uh, you know, these are really terrifying numbers. Those political prison camps are among the worst places to be in all of of the world, frankly. Um, These are horrific places where people don't have access to good food, are forced to labor day in and day out, and often meet their demise there. Um, And even for the average North Korean, they don't enjoy the basic freedoms that many Americans enjoy. Um, They can't watch, for example, South Korean dramas or American movies without fear of reprisal. And many, um, you know, persons of faith there could be murdered in broad daylight for mere possession of a Bible. And so, you know, this is a horrible, horrible place to live where the primary worship that is encouraged is of that of the Kim regime, who has been deified for not just this generation, but for three generations. And so truly violations of basic freedoms, um, as well as religious freedom are rampant there.
0: And also, there's new reports coming out about the economy in North Korea, and it's kind of confusing to understand what's actually going on, because I know the Wall Street Journal came out and said that the private sector is becoming more part of the economy and it may be expanding. Um, Then I have on Fox News reports that the economy shrunk by 5% and that I believe the report was 11 million people in a malnourished state. And then I also hear from the Peterson Institute that we can't actually know what's going on with the economy in North Korea. So what is your impression from your studying of the country?
1: Yeah, well, I I really trust the Peterson Institute. They have some incredible researchers there, including Marcus Noland among others, who have done really great research into the North Korean economy. And they've done a great job in particular of uh, evaluating or or rather valuing trade between the US uh, or between China and North Korea, and um, have done some pretty fantastic work there. So I would concur with them. It's difficult to know. Um, That being said, I, my master's thesis at Georgetown um, was actually focused on the relationship between the institution of both U.S. and U.N. multilateral sanctions and growth in this informal economy, which you made reference to earlier. Um, And I think that at least my paper found that there seems to be a positive correlation between the institution of these sanctions and growth in the informal economy. And I think this is a really instructive um, fact, certainly worthy of additional research and and insight. Um, But it really points to the fact that many North Koreans are resorting to these informal routes in order to provide for themselves. Um, And so you do tend to see a growth in the informal economy, which I think is a good thing, because it means greater access to outside goods as well as outside information, and we should be promoting that to the best of our ability. That being said, um, a number of statistics coming out more recently have also suggested that there may be a humanitarian crisis going on in North Korea. I believe there was a recent UN report that came out that said that crop production, for example, was down by roughly 9%. And um, even if that's the case, I always like to point out to people that, you know, we can look at economic statistics in North Korea, we can look at humanitarian disasters taking place there, but no one poses as significant a threat to the human rights and livelihoods of the average uh, North Korean person than the Kim regime itself, which diverts millions upon billions of dollars Uh, in funding toward its nuclear and missile program, which is something that, frankly, I think receives too little attention. Uh, It's truly the North Korean government who's responsible for the immense suffering that goes on there, whether economic or or humanitarian or otherwise.
0: Yes, I believe you've uh, mentioned before that even if just a little bit of that funding went from missile program to paying for food, that that would be enough to alleviate a lot of the problems there.
1: That's true. I mean, usually North Korea's request to the World Food Program is around 111 million dollars and then I think in 2012 they spent 1.3 billion on their missile program. I'd have to go back and look at that figure, but they spend a lot of money on that, as well as on luxury goods, Um, like 700 million on luxury goods, 300 million on luxury facilities. Again, that was in, I believe, 2012. And I mean, it's shocking because they really could afford to feed their people.
0: And you mentioned earlier the sanctions. So what type of sanctions does the United States have on North Korea now?
1: That's a great question. So we have a a wide range of sanctions against North Korea. um, And those sanctions are instituted on various different grounds. So some are explicitly issued... Um, on for their nuclear and missile program. Others are explicitly issued because of the serious human rights violations, including the continued existence of political prison camps, separation of uh, families on both sides of the Korean Peninsula, um, the abductions of, of various foreign nationals. Um, and then there's also different sanctions authorities, including North Korea's designation as a primary money laundering concern, as well well as designating North Korea as a state sponsor of terrorism. All of those have different financial ramifications, and most of them, unlike the sanctions that maybe your mother or your grandmother was familiar with, um, these are not trade-based sanctions. They're targeted financial measures that are levied at particular individuals and particular entities. And that's why we can claim that those sanctions, in their targeted nature, are much more effective and tend to have less of the concerning humanitarian uh, impacts on the average North Korean person who is innocent and not responsible for carrying out any of these things. But these sanctions are really complex. I think a lot of times from the media, you would get this picture that, oh, well, if North Korea only denuclearizes, then all the sanctions can be lifted. But that's not the case. There are a lot of other requirements uh, laid out in U.S. law that would mandate improvements, not only uh, toward denuclearization, but also toward improvements in human rights that often get lost in the discussion.
0: In addition to our sanctions, we we don't trade much with North Korea, and North Korea relies heavily on China, Russia, and I guess to a smaller extent, or obviously to a smaller extent, South Korea. So like, what is the country's relations to its neighbors like? How much trade is going on? Have we been able to, with our sanctions, stop that type of trade, or is that starting to kick back up again?
1: One of the really negative impacts from engaging with North Korea at the Singapore summit was that that maximum pressure strategy that the Trump administration said was their top priority was substantially weakened. Um, Literally, not even 24 hours had passed after the first summit. And you had both Russia and China saying, "Okay, things are back to normal. We don't need to enforce sanctions as much. And so you've seen a weakening in particular in how um, those countries are instituting their Sanctions and their willingness to support U.S. efforts. Um, and, you know, if in fact post-Hanoi summit we're returning to a maximum pressure strategy, I think it's going to be much more difficult to convince those countries to institute those sanctions in a in a unified manner. Um, I think that China, um, you know, Peterson Institute is another great resource for this, but they have uh, you know, sort of tracked China-North Korea trade for a long time now, and those are valuable statistics to look at. I have not yet, I have not looked at them recently, so I don't know whether or not trade is up between the two countries, but China is notorious for laundering money for the Kim regime. It's one of the reasons why many uh, North Korea watchers have been critical of the Trump administration for not targeting Chinese banks who we know are responsible for laundering money for the regime and likely can be held, you know, partially complicit in the, the continued proliferation of their missile and weapons programs.
0: So why is the Trump administration not targeting the Chinese banks? Is it because he's hoping for a trade deal with China, or are there other issues at play?
1: You know, I think experts have been calling for the, you know, targeted sanctioning of these Chinese banks for a long time, and this even predates uh, trade negotiations. It even predates the Trump administration. Um, Many had urged the Obama administration to do the same. I think some of it may have to do with various political interests at stake in our U.S.-China relationship, uh, and that's fair. But the reality is is that it's hard to call it maximum pressure if you're not going after the very financial institutions that continue to enable North Korea to continue its its proliferation activities, and so I think that um, yeah, in some sense it's almost insincere um, but it's it's unclear because we have targeted Chinese banks in the past. Um, the only example that comes to my mind was in 2005, when the U.S. sanctioned Bank of Delta Asia, and they were in the midst of six-party talks. And there's, you know, anecdotal evidence, albeit, but uh, of North Korean officials saying to U.S. government officials that The targeting of Banco Delta Asia, which was a bank in Macau that was laundering money for the North Korean regime, really put the squeeze on their resources and made it difficult for them to continue developing their weapons program. Unfortunately, the U.S. government unwound that entire uh, program by reverse money laundering the money it had frozen from Banco Delta Asia back to them because the North Koreans were holding up negotiations over it. So we made a really poor uh, political calculation and diplomatic misstep at that time. And I think it's time to learn from that mistake and go back and actually target those banks.
0: And what is the relationship between South Korea and North Korea like now? Has President Moon of South Korea been able to move the country closer to a peaceful relationship? Or like what else is going on there?
1: Yeah, well, Mark, the... In South Korea, Moon Jae-in has made warming or normalization of relations between North and South a legacy issue. And I always get nervous. It doesn't matter what country it is, what political party it is, when something becomes a legacy issue, because people are usually willing to do things that they weren't willing to do before in order to make concessions and to make progress toward achieving that milestone so that it can be a part of their legacy. I think, unfortunately, we're at that point with President Moon Jae-in. I think that the The most unfortunate consequence of his desire to see renewed relations between South Korea and North Korea has been his willingness to um, engage in, for example, inter-Korean economic engagement, which would be a direct violation of sanctions and the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy. I think that it's also resulted in a wedge being driven between the strategies of U.S. and South Korea, who are longstanding allies, and it's the wedge has been driven at a point where the two nations need to look like they're on the same page more than ever. We're in negotiations with North Korea. I mean, I guess it's sort of questionable now after Hanoi, whether or not that is in fact the case, but this is very, very concerning. And I think that the most important thing for the U.S. in this is to really emphasize the continuation of that alliance relationship, which has borne a lot of fruit over the last several years. So my hope is that we can sort of get back on track with those things. But Moon Jae-in is willing to do too much too soon, given that North Korea hasn't taken any tangible steps toward denuclearization, nor have they made any commitments or promises to improve their human rights track record. So I really think that Moon Jae-in needs to go back to the drawing board and reconsider timelines for increasing and warming relationships between the two countries. And, And frankly, remember that we're dealing with a brutal dictator who has never been good at keeping his word.
0: And before we move into uh, talking about the Hanoi summit, uh, my last question in kind of this first section is, can the Kim regime survive with U.S. sanctions, with maximum pressure and with its population being malnourished?
1: Mm, That's a fascinating question and one I wish I had the answer to. I think that the regime can probably survive even with maximum pressure, but it will be painful. And I think that, you know, Kim Jong-un continues to hold on to his nuclear and missile program like a security blanket. He believes that maintaining those weapons programs is the only way for him to maintain his grip on power and to maintain legitimacy. And I think that the international community needs to demonstrate to him that he cannot have the legitimacy nor the longevity that he seeks as a leader. I mean, this is a 30-year-old guy. He's playing a long game here. He wants to be in power in perpetuity. Um, But I think the international community needs to communicate to him that he cannot be viewed as a normal part of the international community. He cannot be a respected leader. uh, If he maintains his rogue, illegal missile and nuclear programs that are in violation of laws and treaties that he agreed to, and beyond that, that he can't be a respected leader if he continues to abuse his people in the way that he does. I think that message needs to be singular and clear, and it needs to come from both the U.S. and South Korea, and it would be far wishful thinking to think it would ever come from China, but, uh, you know, really clear messages need to be sent, and Kim Jong-un needs to be left wondering what his options are.
0: And the biggest topic of late over the past couple of weeks has been the Hanoi summit. And so you were there. And could you give a quick summary of what happened?
1: Yeah. So I want to back up a little bit just because I think it's interesting context to know what it was like to actually be on the ground in Hanoi. It was fascinating because as soon as I stepped off the plane, all of the streets were lined with these flags of the American flag, the North Korean flag and the Vietnamese flag together. It was really fascinating to see the American flag sandwiched between these two communist nations flags and a little bit jarring to be frank. Um and all throughout the streets um there was all this Trump Kim paraphernalia, there was you know all of this these signs that said Hanoi a city for peace. Um and it was clear that the Vietnamese thought that they would be ushering in a new era of relationship between North Korea and the U.S., and that just wasn't what was delivered. Um, it, as the events played out, um, on the 27th, President Trump and Kim Jong-un had dinner together, and then um, the next morning they held a joint press conference. And for me, that was when I knew that things were probably not going very well. Um, President Trump got up and he said to the press, "Um, time is on our our side. We have plenty of time. We don't need a deal today. Um, You know, but if we can get one, great. And Kim Jong-un, in a shocking turn of events, ended up responding to um, a Washington Post reporter, David Nakamura's question about what he saw the prospects of the summit being. And his answer in Korean was, I'm not pessimistic, a double negative. And, you know, I'm not much for like reading into things too much, but the body language and everything just seemed like things were not going well. So they met together after that um, for a, a short bit. I believe they met for less than 45 minutes and then lunch was called off. Um, All of the reporters were expecting to have the North Korean and American delegations arrive. And uh, it was completely called off, as was the joint signing ceremony where a deal was supposed to be inked. And then, of course, we have the now infamous uh, press conference where President Trump says no deal. And the president was really wise to walk away from this type of a, a deal because it turns out what North Korea was asking for was Basically, the complete removal of all sanctions or all sanctions that have strong teeth at the UN level um, and at the US level and um, was very, very concerning. And so I think the president was right to walk away from such a a nefarious deal because the, the exchange was for partial denuclearization, but complete lifting of sanctions, which is an untenable requirement. Um, and so now we're in this sort of in-between space where we don't really know where we go from here next. But uh, it was good that the president said we're not going to sacrifice maximum pressure until there's complete verifiable. Well, he didn't use the term complete verifiable irreversible dismantlement of North Korea's nuclear program, but that's what's legally required in the in the UN sanctions.
0: And so do you think that Trump should have held a summit at all with North Korea and Hanoi, or was it a good attempt to have peace, or should he have used other negotiation tactics?
1: Yeah, hindsight is 50-50, but if, you know, if I were president and I didn't have both sides agreeing upon, for example, the same definition of denuclearization? North Korea agrees to this term known as complete denuclearization, which means um, denuclearization of the entire Korean Peninsula, including U.S. nuclear assets that serve as, you know, sort of an umbrella in the event of uh, crisis on the Korean Peninsula. Um, so we're not even agreed on on the very definitional issues, and then beyond that, um, we uh, you know, we didn't clearly have agreement on what the requirements were for sanctions to be lifted. I don't think I would have pursued a summit at that point. And in my opinion, we got so very little out of the Singapore summit. Um, I published actually in advance of the summit that I, I didn't think a second summit was a wise idea because, I mean, how can you expect more out of doing the same thing? I think essentially a summit grants legitimacy to Kim Jong-un that's undue. This is a brutal dictator. Uh, I always have to hammer that point, probably tell him blue in the face. He's a brutal dictator. He's not a normal guy. And so I don't know. I think it was unwise to come to the table a second time.
0: And you have focused a lot on human rights, which we've already talked about a little bit. But did President Trump address human rights enough for you or did he use it as a rhetorical tool for kind of attacking North Korea, criticizing them? Or like what would you like the Trump administration to do on that front?
1: Yeah. So early on in the Trump administration, the president was extraordinarily vocal about the severe human rights violations. When Otto Warmbier, the UVA American college student, was returned from North Korea in a comatose state, he spoke out really vividly about what had taken place and, you know, had helped to advocate on the Warmbier family's behalf. And then, of course, we had the State of the Union address um, where the president held up uh, North Korean refugee Ji Sung-ho. Uh, As an example of, you know, somebody who is promoting freedom and had escaped a horrible regime, he met with North Korean refugees in the Oval Office. All of these were extraordinary efforts, um, you know, to demonstrate care for the human rights issues. And then as soon as we went to Singapore, all of that went straight out the window with even really regrettable rhetorical things stated as well as, um, you know, a failure to raise human rights issues in any substantial way. In Singapore, the only thing we know was race was religious freedom issues, which is great. But there's other really severe human rights violations ongoing that should have been raised, and they should have been raised in a tangible, deliverable way as well. And then, of course, in Hanoi, the president basically excused Kim Jong-un um, for... Saying that he didn't know anything about the Otto Warmbier case, which is uh, frankly, it's unimaginable. I mean, Kim Jong-un likely knew about Otto Warmbier. And so it was really awful that there was not more that was raised um, about human rights issues, and I think that this is reflective of the fact that the U.S. doesn't view U.S. strategy toward North Korea in a comprehensive manner. It views it in a single track way, which is not even reflective of current U.S. policy. Current U.S. policy, as I outlined, especially sanctions, um, have both human rights and national security components. So the the di- diplomatic efforts should reflect those multifaceted aspects of U.S. policy and U.S. priorities um, in, in a thoughtful manner. But it's impossible. I think it's, it's impossible for negotiations to be successful when you don't raise issues beyond the nuclear one, because they are interconnected in very meaningful ways.
0: One of the uh, theories I've heard or read since the summit was that Kim Jong-un purposely tried to tank the negotiations by coming in and not having any other offer other than what you said, which was the near complete removal of all the sanctions. Do you think he purposely tried to tank the negotiations or was something else happening?
1: I think it's really hard to know, you know, what is going on in Kim Jong-un's head. He says, um, you know, right before the joint or right before the press conference, um, the, there were quotes coming out that Kim Jong-un had said, I wouldn't be coming to the negotiating table if I wasn't sincere about denuclearizing. But every other action that North Korea has taken, it frankly, contradicts that, uh, over the last several weeks, um, satellite imagery, as well as South Korea. Korean intelligence uh, suggests that they were rebuilding their Sohei uh, rocket launch facility, which um, is a part of their you know, overarching weapons program, even though it's more a component of North Korea's space program. And um, the Sohei facility was something that North Korea had clearly uh, only cosmetically dismantled. Um, and so it's concerning because it, again, demonstrates why U.S. negotiators need to press for that legally required definition of complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement of North Korea's nuclear program. Because it has to be irreversible. It has to be complete. Um, And it has to be verifiable. Um, And so I think that that is really, yeah, pretty important. And I think that whether or not Kim jong un came to Hanoi to make you know um a mess of negotiations i I'm not sure we'll ever know, but we can judge North Korea's other actions, which seem to point in the opposite direction from being sincere in, in its desire to denuclearize
0: and you mentioned the uh, nuclear uh, missile site that is being rebuilt, or is it unmothballed? I don't know the technical term for that. But the like, what else is going on with their nuclear program? It seems that it's almost full steam ahead at this point.
1: Yeah, it really does seem like it's full steam ahead. I think we have to wait and watch over the coming weeks and months to see what this looks like. I mean, it's always seemed implausible that Kim Jong Un would willingly give up his nuclear program but it is really interesting and it's i think it confirms a lot of analysts suspicions when they you know it's a couple days after hanoi and new reports are coming out that they're redeveloping the sohei facility so i think it's you know it's definitely something to keep our eye on and to watch out for Um, i think it's again a reason for us to go back um, and look at what is most important when it comes to our diplomatic efforts with North Korea. And they aren't what's done publicly. It's not the photo ops. It's not the big summits and the hullabaloo that surrounds them. It is really about those working-level discussions. And Secretary Pompeo and Special Representative for North Korea Policy Steve Began have consistently hit a brick wall. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of you know, really concerning elements to the ongoing negotiations process.
0: Would you say that North Korea yeah. observers were surprised about the missile and nuclear programs basically being restarted? From, because from my perspective, I wasn't surprised, especially after the Singapore summit, when I think after a couple of days, we had satellite images being leaked or being uh, produced by some public source showing that they were starting. So like, what was the impression like from your perspective on like, was there a surprise?
1: Yeah, our impressions are aligned. I was not surprised at all. And actually, I was in Hanoi, I was a little bit surprised that we didn't come out with anything that looked Like success, because the president had nothing really to bring back other than that he had maintained his hard line on North Korea, um, which was which was worthy. Like it was really good that um, we did not sign on the dotted line for an agreement that was not only untenable, but actually illegal. Um, So, no, I I agree with you, Mark. I was not surprised at all to see that they were continuing their development of their, their programs. And I think we can expect to see other similar activities like this in the foreseeable future unless there's some way to either restart negotiations or to so hamstring North Korea with those sanctions that they're unable to continue developing their program.
0: And since the summit, we've also had the announcement or the cancellation of military exercises. Like what are the purpose of these military exercises and why is this the gift that keeps on giving? (laughs)
1: It truly is the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, that's great. Um, So I think we made a huge mistake in Singapore in temporarily suspending the joint military exercises. Um, And so now in Hanoi, to have both U.S. and South Korea move forward with the full ending of those large-scale joint military exercises was a significant mistake. The president has repeatedly mischaracterized those joint military exercises as being, um, you know, hostile in nature. But the reality is, is that they're defensive. They are preparedness efforts that give our troops who are serving in South Korea situational awareness and the ability to work with South Korean counterparts. We've now sacrificed that without getting anything in return, not a single thing. And so, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Uh, Experts were surmising that this was something that was pre-planned with South Korea, but it was predicated on having a successful summit in Hanoi. So I think it was a little bit unclear as to why they were moving forward with this. But I think that part of it was this recognition that, you know, Moon Jae-in is deeply invested in having a detente with North Korea. And he wanted to be able to give something in order to entice them back to the negotiating table. But again, it's, you know, just like the Hanoi summit was too much too soon on the heels of Singapore, Uh, summit and all other failed closed-door negotiations, um, the joint military exercises and their full suspension, at least of the large-scale ones, was too much too soon.
0: Another thing that I think happened shortly after the announcement of the military military exercises being canceled was the, uh, you know, leaked reports about a, you know, Forcing allies to pay more for hosting us troops There's this idea of the cost plus 50 where Mm. the countries would pay, you know, the full cost of the troops Housing and whatever plus 50% more the idea of like trying to get more money for this Um, So is there talk about South Korea's relationship? How's that going to affect us South Korea relations or? Is this going to push South Korea away? Like, what's the dynamics there? And is that kind of in play with the military cancellations or are they separate issues?
1: Yeah, I think that there are really concerns around the globe about um, how Alliance relationships are working going forward. And I think that there, is, there are a few times in history when alliance relationships, particularly our alliances with Japan and South Korea, have been so very important. I think that this is a moment when we should be supporting our allies the most. And frankly, our allies should be coordinating better with us, Um, because oftentimes I think uh, the Moon administration has sent messages to North Korea that were contrary or just not quite in line with the U.S. and vice versa. And so I think that it's really important for the U.S. and South Korean alliance to be on the same page when it comes to dealing with North Korea to send a unifying message and, and a hard line um, to North Korea. I do worry, especially how it was very difficult for the U.S. and South Korea earlier this year to negotiate the special measures agreement, which has to do with uh, U.S. troop presence on the Korean peninsula, in large part because the president continued to ask for North Korea to share uh to pay for more of the military costs, um, I don't necessarily think that there's anything wrong with requiring our allies to pay their fair share. But if you look at the amounts, I don't have the exact numbers. I mean, South Korea pays a significant share, as does Japan, of their alliance, um, you know, duties. And so, I I think that things. Our, our alliance with South Korea has a lot more that is at stake and is a lot more important than just dollars and cents. And I think that this is sort of the wrong time to be going down that pathway, considering that we have so many concerns, not only regarding North Korea, but also China, and then also other humanitarian concerns, which the troops are also used to respond to around the region.
0: And another topic that comes up a lot with you know having bases and troops overseas is why should the US have troops in this case specifically South Korea and I know that before I started working at Providence I was an adjunct professor of political science back home in Mississippi and one of the I didn't know
1: that that's great
0: yeah it was a lot of fun didn't pay well but it was a lot of fun so (laughs) hence why I moved to DC but the so I remember having this conversation with my students and I had brought up that you know one of the good points of having an alliance between South Korea and Japan is that those two countries don't necessarily get along but having an alliance with us kind of prevents them from getting into conflict and I remember one of my students basically saying well just let them you know fight it out like why should we be there and like my initial response was well there's a ton of trade that goes through these waters and uh, you know I telling them pull your phone out like even though you have an iphone with a samsung screen like there's parts from all over asia that's being put into this product including design from the united states and whatnot so uh, like what how do you like you know do you get this question a lot of like why should we have troops in south korea and what is your response
1: yeah so i think that alliances are hugely important and in fact i would argue that the It's, I mean, like affectionately called the hub and spokes model of alliances where the, you know, the U S is the hub and the various countries are the spokes, um, has, really presented the U.S. with immense opportunities, not only to advance U.S. interests in the region, but also to um, really influence the the values and even the governance um, and decision-making of a lot of these countries in a really important way, um, and vice versa, I mean, to be fair. Uh, but I think that it has, in large part, put China and other uh other actors sort of on their back foot. They've been forced to respond. China's only ally in the entire region is North Korea. And the U.S. has Japan, South Korea, Philippines, Thailand, and Australia. And the loose, you know, not an actual alliance, but strong partnerships with other countries in the region, including Taiwan. Um, And so I think that there's really important elements to the alliance infrastructure that just cannot be uh, over like underestimated. Um, It has been, yeah, just a huge boon. And having the troops there in particular uh, enables us to easily respond in the midst of, of any sort of conflict, either on the Korean Peninsula or elsewhere. And so I think that it's hugely important that we continue to maintain a troop presence there and I think a lot of people are worried that the signs from the you know ending of the joint military exercises especially the large joint military exercises is pointing toward eventual troop withdrawal which North Korea would love nothing more than to have no US troops on its border.
0: Do you think if relations between South Korea and the United States you know, deteriorates with, you know, troop withdrawal or some other situation that South Korea could move closer to China? Or are there too many
1: other factors in play? If the U.S. were to withdraw its troops, I think that there would be significant reverberations throughout the entire region, not only impacting the way that the North Korea relates to China but also how China relates to South Korea or how China relates to Japan. I think it would really be seen as a vacuum and a void that would be left of leadership around the globe. I don't think it would just have impacts within Asia. I think it would have impacts worldwide. Um, I think it would be a huge mistake and I hope that's not the direction that we're headed.
0: And to kind of go back to the summit a little bit, the, so we talked earlier about the relationship between North Korea and its neighbors kind of pre-summit, and have we seen any changes between North Korea and its neighbors after the summit?
1: Mm, that's a great question, and one I'm not sure that I, I fully have the answer to. I mean, one I would say is that you know, Moon Jae-in has continued to pursue this warming relationship with North Korea. I mean, you even saw right after the summit Moon Jae-in saying, we're going to continue forward with our planned inter-Korean economic activities in spite of the lack of progress in Hanoi. Um, Honestly, that was pretty tone deaf because it's impossible to have inter-Korean economic engagement without the lifting of sanctions. Um, and so I'm not sure how that's going to work, but I think that there's still this desire and, and many are looking now to President Moon to reinvigorate any sort of dialogue. And so I guess in that sense, um, you know, Korea has always been so- South Korea has always, to some extent, been in the driver's uh, seat, but they usually allow the U.S. to take the lead on negotiation efforts. And I think maybe now the U.S. is, is needing to rely a little more on its ally to set the tone and, and maybe reinvigorate those talks. Um, I think China is probably, you know, couldn't be happier with the outcome, uh, although they have publicly stated that they believe that negotiations are the best way to resolve challenges on the Korean peninsula. But bear in mind that China isn't even sure whether or not they want a denuclearized North Korea. Uh, They've given conflicting messages on that over the years. I think Japan was incredibly worried that Hanoi went the way that it went. Um, And I think that they would probably share a lot of U.S. uh, opinions that the summit shouldn't have taken place if this was the anticipated outcome. Um, yeah, so I guess that's some somewhat of a change in the relationships. But um, yeah, I think we have to wait and see a little bit because we're still only about a week and a half out from the summit.
0: And you've written in Forbes recently about what the U.S. should do now that the summit has collapsed and uh, you know we have this new dynamic so could you like go over like some different policies that you would like the united states to do now
1: definitely so if we learned anything from the hanoi summit it was that north korea desperately wants sanctions to be lifted Um, in the press conference that the north korean side held after the summit they said that they wanted sanctions to be lifted um, and that that was something that they deeply desired going forward that should be a message to the Trump administration to make a return to maximum pressure policy, because clearly, uh, and they even said that sanctions were what brought them to the negotiating table. So it brought them to the negotiating table. They want them lifted. So the U.S. continues to possess leverage in order to sort of set the tone for future dialogue and the terms, too. Um, But beyond that, the U.S. needs to take a hard look at what current sanctions policy looks like, you know, as, as we've discussed earlier in the conversation, um, the sanctions policy is, is really multifaceted. And so diplomacy should be multifaceted, too. That means pressing on North Korea for the severe human rights violations that it commits, because apart from pressing them, we're failing to recognize another aspect of quote unquote legitimacy. That Kim Jong-un seeks Kim Jong-un believes that apart from you know suppressing his people he can't maintain his grip on power and we need to go after that I think that we need to target that um, because it's another aspect it's another security blanket that Kim jong-un is is holding on to and beyond that, Uh, Kim Jong-un uses free labor in the North Korean prison camps as free labor for the regime. Reports suggest that chemical and biological weapons are regularly tested on inmates in these political prison camps, or even children or the disabled. Um, We also see that uh, North Korea um, continues to, as you said, divert resources away from its people. I think that there are a lot of ways that the human rights issue and national security concerns related to North Korea's nuclear and missile program are interlinked. And I think apart from addressing those issues in tandem, it's going to be really hard to make progress going forward. So that's my hope. My hope is that the administration returns to that max pressure policy and really has a moment where they deeply reevaluate their policy priorities and make sure that diplomacy really reflects those priorities that are already clearly outlined in current US strategy.
0: And I believe you also mentioned that there should not be a summit or another summit unless like what, what would need to happen before another summit happens?
1: Yeah, I think that another summit should not take place. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't think that the summit should have taken place in Hanoi. Um, I don't think that the Uh, sides should come to the negotiating table until they have an agreed upon deal where both sides are clear about the definition of denuclearization, where they're requiring North Korea to meet the legally required standard, and where no sanctions are going to be lifted until that legally required standard is met. But not just the legally required standard on denuclearization, but also the legally required standards on political prison camps, among other severe human rights violations.
0: And the final question I have for you is, now that it's been two years since our last podcast, are you more optimistic or less optimistic today than you were in February of
1: 2017? Mm. Wow, that's a doozy of a question. (laughs) Um, I think I would say that I am probably about the same because I really feel like no progress was made during the negotiation process, either on the nuclear front or on the human rights front. And while the promise of future dialogue is there, I don't think that the administration has uh, crafted diplomacy in such a way that it would deliver on either the human rights or the, the nuclear front. And so I would say I probably feel about the same. The minor addendum to that would be to say that, you know. In 2017, uh, the Obama administration had substantially fewer. That, that was still during the Obama era, right? Or is that... It was,
0: uh, I think, like one month after the uh, inauguration.
1: Um, so it would have been in the early months. Even still, um, regardless it would have been, I believe, before the maximum pressure policy had been initiated. And so there were fewer sanctions against North Korea at that time. And I do have confidence that the leverage that was created, not only through executive level sanctions, uh, which some were inherited from the Obama administration, and then But also the new legislation passed by Congress, the North Korean Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act, now conditions sanctions both on nuclear and missile program related issues as well as human rights concerns. And that didn't exist previously. I believe that gives really strong leverage to potentially shift North Korea's risk calculus. And so that gives me hope. But the diplomatic process itself really hasn't changed my outlook on whether or not we're going to actually see a change in North Korean society as a whole.
0: Well, Olivia, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. And I hope that we don't have to wait another two years to get you on for another episode. (laughs) And uh, well, again, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast
1: on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.